Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 452nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who has been making more than juice from a popular fruit. We're talking with returning guest Kanan Routson about apple cider. Kanan has devoted his life, including two graduate degrees, to exploring and promoting apple tree diversity. His latest work has been co-founding Stoic Cider, a local hard cider company based out of Prescott, Arizona. Through the RAD project, that's Restoring Apple Diversity, Stoic Cider works to find, propagate, and promote unique apple varieties and to celebrate this diversity through hard apple cider. Stoic Cider is growing and preserving local heritage apples, wild apples, and European and American cider varieties in several orchards on the family farm. They utilize white winemaking techniques to create premium dry fruit forward. Man, we're going to have a lot to talk about ciders. And we got to meet Kanan in podcast episode 199, where he talked all about apples back in February of 2017. Welcome back to the show today, Kanan. Are you ready to rock apple cider? Absolutely. I am really excited to be here. Excellent. So can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening since we chatted with you in February of 2017? Because I don't think your cider was started then, was it? It was not started then. We were all about thinking about cider, and Uh we were up to our elbows in the federal, state, and county licensing licensing mm. process. Oh, yes. And that that literally, we decided to make cider in 2015. And by 2017, we were still wading through the paperwork. Pulling your hair out? Surprisingly, we still have some hair. Well, that's good. <laughs> and so we completed the licensing in probably June, June, early July of 2017. And then by December 2017, we had our first batch of cider for sale. Wow. And we've just been going for it ever since. Yeah. So in our intro, it talked about hard apple cider. And for those people that don't know the distinction there, can you tell us about apple cider and hard apple cider and what's the difference? Oh, yes. Okay. So there is the common three things to do with apples and beverages. 
or apple juice. And apple juice is fresh, non-alcoholic. Mm. It's the difference. And then, so the other fresh apple juice is apple cider, fresh apple cider. And so the distinction between juice and cider, as I understand them, they're both non-alcoholic. Mm-hmm. The ju- juice is something you get, it's a little more commercialized. It's been filtered to remove any particulate matter. So it's bright, crystal clear. Right. And it's usually shelf stable. So it's been pasteurized. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go to a farmer's market or you go to a farm and you get juice right out of the press, that would be apple cider. Nice. And and we make the third version, and that is taking that fresh apple cider off the farm, mixing yeast with it. You can do that through natural yeast, spontaneous fermentations, or you can add beer yeast, or you can add wine yeast, and we can get into all the differences that come out if you add those. But the main difference, what we're talking about here is the yeast ferment, the juice, eat all the sugar, and turn that into alcohol. And it's an alcoholic beverage at that point, hard nice. apple cider. Nice. And as we were coming on the air, talking before we started recording, you mentioned a version of this that had dried apricots in it. So it's not all about just apples then, right? That is correct. And we, well, yes, there's lots of nuances. And there's, when you start digging beneath the, like, get past the commercial hard apple ciders, there's what are called modern ciders and what are called heritage ciders. And heritage ciders really rely on very old, I don't want to say primitive, but drawing back on our heritage to produce ciders that are very much um, celebrating the apple, celebrating the apple's character, the heritage mm-hmm. apples specifically, and then creating a product from that. Whereas modern apple cider, the cider is the backbone or the base, and then works. you add things, flavors to that, such oh. that... For instance, we are working on a batch right now where we aged dried apricots in the cider for almost been like four months at this point. Wow. And then so the dried apricot flavor is infusing into the cider and adding a new layer of flavor, a new complexity. Oh man, I want some of that. Can I get it? Ooh, we're carbonating right now, probably in about a week, week and a half. Cool. So, and, and our listeners will be able to buy from you and we're going to talk about that in a little while, right? Absolutely. Okay, Please, cool. Scott. <laughs> so here's a question for you. I made some apricot brandy here a while back, and what I noticed was that the apricots, when they came out, I actually ate them, and they had a nice punch to them. Can you eat the dried apricots coming out of the cider? Uh, the, the short answer is absolutely yes. The long answer is we left them in there a really long time, so they were pretty much mush at that point. Got it. Cool. So why are apples so commonly associated with cider and and how many different kinds of apples are there for making cider? The number of apple varieties that you can make cider is not limited. It's basically the number of apple varieties that exist. I mean, I reference Dan Bussey, who's an apple historian, and he just, in the last, within the last couple of years, came out with the illustrated history of apples in the United States and Canada. Really? Where he, um, amazing volume. It's like an encyclopedia. What was, the na- what was his name? Dan Bussey. Dan Bussey. So we don't, given you're a a guest back on the show, we don't ask for a book, but give us the name of this book again, because an illustrated history of apples in the United States, that's got to be fascinating. In Canada. Yes. And it's literally, oh, I don't know, five volumes. Oh my gosh. He counted about sixteen thousand named apple varieties grow uh, being having grown been grown or referenced in U.S. literature in the last two hundred years. Wow, 
Do you so know the, the diversity is incredible. Yeah. Do you know the backstory behind that? Behind the book? Uh, behind all those apples. I think a lot of it is small farms experimenting and growing new things. Johnny Appleseed, the yep. classic story of Johnny Appleseed really ties into this. Yeah. And part of that story is at one time in the United States, you needed to, in order to homestead a farm, to get uh, free land from the government, you had to plant an orchard of at least 50 apples or pear trees. And many people that were in the position to homestead didn't have the money, the capital resources to buy nursery trees. So seedling apples, grow apples from seed is very efficient that way. But you, you know, your chances of a good eating apple are very small. So right. just plant lots and lots of apples and use them for cider. And it doesn't really matter what they taste like. It's what they taste like fermented that you're concerned Ex- about. Exactly. Wow. Cool. All yeah. right. So I cut you off. We were talking about why uh, so are so many apples commonly associated with cider. And I, you were going to go a direction with that. And then I, I kind of sideswiped you. So do you remember where we were going? Sure. I mean, so apples have, and we can... I don't know how deep we want to dig into this, but essentially apples have a lot of flavor character that you don't get in the five to 10 commercial apple varieties that we have Mm -hmm. commercially available. So a fresh eating apple, the attributes that we love are crisp, sweet, and juicy, I think are the main three. Mm -hmm. And when you ferment it out, crisp goes away. It doesn't matter. Right. And sweet, the yeast loves sugar. And if you ferment it to dry, the sweet goes away. And so all you're left with is juicy. And pretty much every apple, well, take that back. There are a couple of very dry apples out there, but most apples have juice. So Mm -hmm. in the world of cider, we are very interested in polyphenols, which in wine, you're also interested in polyphenols, complex molecules that are, I think, I believe they're used for plant defenses for the plant. Yeah, that sounds right. In our case, we're looking at tannin, and tannin offers mouthfeel. It gives your palate something to, I guess, chew on, as it were, but you're not really chewing the cider, it's just theory. Mm -hmm. And really good apple flavor, apple-y flavor, that can come through. So we're looking for intensely flavored apples, and tannic apples are great for us also. And sugar, like super sugary apples lead to higher alcohol. And that's always fun. Right. That combination. Cool. And let's talk a little bit about processing apples. Because a a few years back, I actually bought an apple crusher and an apple press for home use. And, you know, I think I spent about 800 bucks on it. You know, the the poor thing gets used about one day a year because I only have (laughs) that many apples here. But it's it's actually a pretty simple process to to get the apple juice out. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely, yes. So the it's a very simple process, and you're right. It is very expensive to buy simple tools to get juice out of apples. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the, the, main, the main thing you have to do is break cell walls, and cell walls, they're pretty, they're pretty rigid. That's what we like is the crisp texture. Yeah. So you have to break those cell walls to release the juice, and then you have to somehow press the juice out of that pulp. What we have is essentially a giant Cuisinart that it's a three-quarter horse motor, and you can dump a 40-pound box of apples into it, and we'll grind it up in about three seconds. And we have a wine bladder press and a wine bladder press. These aren't, I mean, they're expensive for the home use, but they're not out of line. I think they're, yeah, like you said, in the $800 to $1,000 range. Yeah. And it's a, essentially a, a rubber bladder that you fill with water, and it presses against a stainless steel cage. So you grind up the apple pulp, and you can do that 
I, we, the, when we first started learning how to do this, we tried chopping the apples so that you're not breaking cell walls. So it's, they're, oh, right. it's quite ineffective. Yeah. But a blender of some, a Cuisinart, a blender, something that can grate the apples into roughly pea-sized kernels. Right. And then, the smaller the the smaller the better. You're going to get better juice press out of smaller chunks. Correct. Down to the size of a pea turns out is ideal because any smaller than that, like if you're pressing through a cheesecloth or a filter of some kind, you don't want the pulp to be so fine that it bind like mashes into the filter. Or right. the, yeah. So pea size is good. So <laughs> do it yourself model we looked at is you can take a like a brand new sink garbage disposal and a sink. And just put a bucket under it and plug it in and just grind apples through that thing. And it grinds them up just about the right size. Right. And that's a lot cheaper than buying a commercial grinder. Oh, interesting. Right. There's a lot of home juicers that are really effective at getting juice out. I'm forgetting the names of them, but the Acme juicer or the, you know, whatever. They tend to get a lot of pulp, too. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what we found with those is you pretty, if you're going to use one of those home juicers, you have to juice them into like a, you could use a bucket or a gallon jar or something, put them in the fridge and let them sit maybe three days and then rack the juice off, get a little, a siphon hose and try and separate the juice from the pulp. So that's for a home option. That's probably the easiest. Cool. Okay. So now we have all of this great apple juice slash cider. What happens next? Well, the next process, the next thing is to ferment it. And for us, that results in often we'll add something called pectic enzyme. And you can get that at your home brewing store. You don't have to, but that it breaks down the pectin in the cider and the pectin can cause uh, haziness later. It's not essential to get rid of, but if you want bright, clear ciders, adding some pectic enzyme or pectin enzyme will clarify that. Mm-hmm. There's sulfite and sulfite is slightly controversial tool, I guess. It's universal in the wine industry and as an antioxidant. Sulfur, sulfite is an incredible antioxidant and that really preserves fresh character. And we put a little bit in early on to preserve, to keep oxidation from happening. You want a little bit of oxidation because that's your gold color. Oh, right. You don't want too much. Yep. Like (laughs) if you just, if you... If you have no oxidation, your cider will be clear, essentially. So mm-hmm. a little bit is good because it adds the beautiful color. Um, but you don't want too much because oxidized flavors are associated with old flavors, I guess, or just stale. And during so during fermentation, sulfite is gone by bottling. Mm-hmm. And many commercial places will add a bunch of sulfite back in at the end. And I'm pretty I'm very sensitive to sulfite. It sulfur dried apricots, things like that give me a real itchy throat. So I will use it as an antioxidant early in the process and then not again. So, okay, so what happens next? So in our case, we put a little bit of sulfite in and a little bit of pectic enzyme and let the juice sit a couple days just to kind of mellow. Mm -hmm. And then we'll pitch it with yeast. And if you don't pitch it with yeast, the cider, the sugar in the apple juice is a food source. Something will come and eat it. And... Wild yeasts can be can lead to some of the most interesting flavors out there, but they can also be quite unpalatable. And they're also not, they're hard to replicate. So we pitch it, we prefer white wine yeast. We consider the apple fruit to be very similar to white wine in its process. It's a fruit juice. We love the bright fruit character associated with uh, wine. It's not like red wine where it has a lot of tannin associated with it unless mm-hmm. 
some some of the some of the English cider apples do have a lot of tannin, and they are a much more robust cider. The wine yeasts also they're just very clean and fermenting. They get that crisp appley taste. So we'll pitch it with that. And oxygen early in the process is your friend. The yeast need oxygen to reproduce and make more yeast. Later in the fermentation process, oxygen can become an enemy. It can oxidize, mm-hmm. and it can. There's a, a lot of bacteria that a lot of bacteria need oxygen, and those would be your vinegar bacteria. So in the cider world, there's a saying that God loves vinegar. So every process of apple juice through fermentation will eventually turn into vinegar and vinegar bacteria like warm conditions and lots of oxygen. So another reason to keep fermentations cold and we ferment about 55 degrees, which is, it's not refrigerator cold, but it's not 72 degrees that your house should be. So maybe a garage. Do you have a root cellar that you're doing that in? We have, we have our, what we call the cider shack. And it was a building that my dad built originally as a food processing unit for our farm. And he never got around to finishing it because we didn't have a lot of food to process on the farm. But when we needed to get our license, we had to have a a facility. So we saw this building that was mostly finished with stainless steel counters and things like that. We're like, that's our space. Yeah, no kidding. So a walk-in cooler, that's, that was originally we used that. We just set the walk-in cooler temperature to 55 degrees and fermented away. And then we've since turned it down because we have kegs that we don't want to get too hot. So mm-hmm. now we ferment and we have a insulated shipping container that we use that we keep at 55 degrees. Oh, nice. And we have a one glycol chiller system that we just run water in. And in, in the brewing industry and in the wine industry, glycol, you can use, it's basically a refrigerator that refrigerates fluid and it pumps that fluid through pipes. pipes and yeah. it, Yep. And then tanks, the tanks have this, what's called a jacket around it. They have the tank, they're basically two layered tanks. So there's the outside walls and the inside walls and inside the inside walls is your cider. And then the space between is where you, this refrigerated fluid circulates and keeps the tanks at exactly the right temperature. Oh, cool. So you're cooling and the it, tanks, not the space. Correct. Oh, interesting. And well, yes, more efficient. <laughs> so glycol is a cooling agent. And you need that so the water doesn't freeze. But at 55 degrees, the water is so far from freezing that we don't need to use it. So we just circulate water through the system, and we still call it a glycol system. <laughs> but that glycol then, doesn't interact with the cider at all except to cool it. Correct. It's yeah. like got it. it has a stainless steel barrier between, yeah. and it's in a closed closed loop. But we just use water. So, so primary fermentation was when you pitch the yeast, the yeast quickly start fermenting, and then they'll eat up all of the sugar. And that's variable but for us that's usually three weeks to six weeks with kind of a month priming average when it's we're watching the sugar drop each day and you do that through a hydrometer and that's a you get that at a beer store it's basically a little a glass weight that floats mm-hmm. at various <laughs> buoyancies the sugar is very dense and alcohol is very light and so they there's they just know the ratio of you know as the yeast eat the sugar it turns into more alcohol and you can change your readings on the hydrometer and when that primary fermentation is finished, the cider is very yeasty and very green, mm-hmm. and honestly, not delicious. <laughs> so hold on, so hold on. It. You took you okay. took this apple juice and you fermented it for as many weeks a as month. we talked a month. Yep, yep. three weeks to a month. And when it comes out, it doesn't taste very good. 
No, it's very yeasty. Oh, all right. It tastes, it's very sedimenty and very yeasty. Uh-huh. And it's funny because if you take a, like, if you imagine, if you, you know, a graph through time, apple juice starts off being super delicious. You pitch yeast on into it and it rapidly becomes not delicious at all and quite yeasty, I guess is the best word. Right. And then after a month or so, it's still pretty bad. And then it goes through what we call maturation. And that's just letting time be your friend Mm -hmm. and keeping it cold and keeping the oxygen away and light away because light can oxidize things as well. So we keep the cider cool and dark and just let time act and the yeast will precipitate out of solution and flavors will mellow. So it loses its yeasty flavors and really gains a more rounded character. Mm -hmm. I guess is the best way. Wow. So really it's just, it's, it's a, Pressing process, a fermenting process, and then, whoa, hold on, we need to wait here process. A maturation, yes, a patience process. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So in all of that, I, I, I had a few years ago, I have an apple tree in my backyard that produces many pounds of apples. And I had somebody come by and they harvested a bunch of the apples and they made apple wine and brought me six pack of apple wine when it was done. What's the difference between apple cider and apple wine? Well, it's a very blurry line. No, okay, good. <laughs> we are a farm winery. <laughs> we produce farm wine so we can ferment grapes or we can ferment apples. We can make apple wine. So generally, generally, and there's lots of variations, we carbonate our cider. Uh-huh. And so so it has a more bubbly feel to it, whereas wines tend to, you would tend to think of as a still wine, although there are carbonated wines as well. And uh-huh. wines tend to be a little bit higher in alcohol. And there are ways to there are lots of ways to get higher alcohol. If we just take the straight apples that are summer ripened in Arizona and ferment them out, we're looking at somewhere between six and a half to seven and a half percent alcohol, mm-hmm. natural or whatever. But you can take the the juice and you can freeze it and sugar freezes at a different temperature than water. So you freeze the juice and as it freezes, the water is going to freeze out first. And so at some point during the freezing process or during the thawing process, the other way, the sugar will thaw first. You can skim out a bunch of the ice and concentrate the sugars, concentrate the flavors, Wow! ferment that, ferment that out. And you have, you know, a, a nine to 15% alcohol wine. And that's like, if you get an apple wine, what I'm imagining apple wine, it will be a higher alcohol product. Yeah. Well, and it was, it was a dry, really, I was, I was going to say a dry, really sweet wine, but the sweet part, it wasn't a sweet wine, but it was sweet to get it from my apple trees. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> like an awesome sweet. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. It was an awesome dry apple wine. And, and I was like, bring me some more apple wine from my trees, please. Mm-hmm. So I know for about the past 10 minutes, we've been talking about the fermenting process. Did we get all the way through it? There were so many parts to it. I believe we covered a bunch of it. There's Yes, there's lots of directions you can go, and we're still learning a lot of those directions, but we covered the basics. Of. Yeah, so I can only imagine with thousands of different kinds of apples out there, the different flavor profiles on these different apples, they would make different ciders. Can yes. You, can, can we dig into that a little bit? Yes, and that's that's something that we're learning it's, you know, in the grape world, it's the difference between a Cabernet and a Merlot and a, I don't know, pick another one, Pinot Grigio. There you go. However, in the apple world, we have not done the experiments that we have done in the grape world. 
Now, when you I say tend- do you, when you say we, are you talking the royal we? So uh, I'm talking the whole cider world. Yeah, yes. exactly. Okay, good. We are so primitive in our cider making in this country that. I don't know, maybe that this was like 1960s for grape wine production. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of the cider that's produced is produced from table apples that are left over from, you know, the fresh eating industry. And I'm just really excited that as an industry that we start probing into things. I'll give you an example, Golden Russet. Golden Russet is an American apple from 1700s and it's russeted. So if you imagine a potato, it has a it's kind of a sandpapery skin. Oh yes, uh-huh. And that somehow that sandpapery skin interacts with the environment and somehow makes a very unique flavor and a very high sugar flavor. Interesting. And when you press that juice, it's just very very thick and yields just a very distinctive delightful cider that's we made some and it's just very much like it's very full bodied compared to something like pick a dessert apple red delicious or something would be a much lighter cider. Mm-hmm. So just two different apples lead to very different characters. One is light, very light and subtle flavors. One is more robust, full flavored. And that's just two different kinds of apples. Like you said, there's 16,000 apples. So <laughs> exactly. <we're, laughs> and probably 90% of them, we have no idea what their individual traits are. Right. And probably, uh, let's say, 80% of those need to be blended for best results. Like mm-hmm. one apple might be too sharp to be you know, a great cider on its own. And one cider might have a lot of full body character, but not a lot of fruity character, might not have enough acidity. So you're looking for things, you're looking for balance, I guess, as well as character. Cool. So if I were to drive up the road into your farm, what would I be looking at? And how many apple trees do you have? And how old are they? Just tell me about your, your growing space. Okay, so our parents, this is my brother and I, co-founders of the company with our wives, but it's um, mom and dad. We're, how do you say, back to the land hippies and from the 1970s. Nice. And in the 1980s, they bought a farm, 40 acres outside of Prescott, Arizona, and juniper, pinion juniper woodland, oak, kind of the uh, chaparral confluence. So there's a lot of oak brush as well. Pretty good groundwater. But it's we're in the desert, so not a lot of surface water. Mm-hmm. We are in a cold area, so we have it's all of William Williamson Valley that we're in. The Granite Mountain it's is by Prescott, and it's a very north facing drainage that drains by us, and a oh, lot wow. of cold cold air drains down, yeah. which is great for nice cool weather, <laughs> but it's not ideal, amazing for growing apple trees. Oh. And there's nowhere on the farm that's over 100 feet off the bottom of the cold air drainage. And that's the the 100 feet is kind of the cold air sink. Mm -hmm. If you're above that, the cold air pockets, you tend to avoid spring freezing. So we have big issues with spring freezing. And a lot of my research, a lot of my focus on the farm is planting varieties that I think will do amazing in cider and then planting varieties that I think will be resilient to climate variability. Yeah, there you go. Yep. And I think that climate change, changing growing conditions, I think the rest of the world might have might have issues with these things, same things that we have in this on our little farm. So I yeah. think it's a great lab space. No kidding. Um, so yeah, we have about a half an acre at this point of nursery, and nursery is 
where we have very young apple trees, we buy M111 rootstock commercially. And that's because we can get, if you buy a thousand rootstock, they're from a commercial source, at eighth inch size grading, they're about 40 to 50 cents a piece. Mm-hmm. Plant them in rows very close together, about a foot apart, and let them grow a little bit maybe a year season and then graft them. And we're just, we just got through grafting season, but the idea of grafting is it enables you to clone these specific varieties that we want more of. Right. I just want to throw this in there for all our listeners. That's how most fruit trees are grown. Basically you take a rootstock and the, the fruiting stock or the sky on and you graft them together. It's been done for thousands of years there's, you know, it's, uh, I've often people will ask me, well, is that genetically modified? It's not. And this is perfectly normal way to do things in the fruit tree industry. Yep. The Chinese were grafting what, 5,000 years ago. The exactly. Greeks were grafting a thousand, 2,000 years ago. And the idea with M111, or there's lots of different rootstocks, but the idea is that it controls the size of the tree. So you, it's very predictable on how big the tree will get. Mm-hmm. And they're very drought and tolerant of wide range of soils. And in the Southwest, drought's a big deal. So we want a rootstock that's very adept at getting groundwater, ground moisture. Mm-hmm. And so the, the nursery is about a half an acre. As I said, we have about 2,500 trees in that half acre, ranging from the early ones we planted was 2015. So those are getting about six feet tall now. So we grafted 400 this spring that are oh, less than a foot tall. Yeah. And then of our permanent nursery, or our permanent orchards, you get them out of the you get them out of the nursery. Eventually, by 2015, those are what four year old trees. Now they want out of the nursery. They're getting big. Our orchard space is at a premium right now, and so we're expanding our orchards. We would like to have about 10 acres in total. Right now, we have about three acres in total. So you got a lot of room to grow. We have a lot of room to grow. Right, exactly. I think mom and dad are wondering when I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> when I fill up 10 acres, mom and dad. When I fill up 10 acres, exactly. And yes, and it's all one giant experimental research project, essentially. You know, I, I, I call the Urban Farm an environmental showcase home because it's one great big experiment. <laughs> I love it. I and you get it. and you get to drink your experiment. I get to eat mine, so we're good. <laughs> so tell me about your rad project. When I read about it the other day, it was like, whoa! What are you doing? So the uh, our orchard project is yes, rad. It's the idea that's pretty much that I've been taken and run with for the last ten years of my life. It's mm-hmm. this idea that there's this amazing diversity of apples. Apples are fantastic. How do we celebrate this diversity? And how we have chosen to celebrate this diversity is to drink it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so we are looking at all of the old heritage orchards in the Southwest and finding unique apples that are hopefully at least have cultural value or unique characteristics from the Southwest. We are propagating those in our nurseries and then in our orchard. We are digging, really digging into the wild apples for broad range of characters from color. There's a bunch of red fleshed apples that are in the crab apples and wild apples for flavor profiles, really a lot of tropical characters that you don't get in most uh, domesticated apples Yeah, and really intense tannin that are hard to find in domestic apples as well. So we got our heritage apples, our wild apples. And the other thing in wild apples is we have a big seedling project of Kazakhstan apples from a really northern cold site in Kazakhstan. And we're hoping that those will be 
resilient to our climatic variability. Their seedlings are a foot tall at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very long-term project. Of course. Growing fruit trees is a long-term project. It is. Yep. It's an exercise in patience. And then there's the French, English, and German cider apples, and even some American cider apples. And we are grafting. So going back the last few hundred years in these different countries, people have been like have chosen varieties to plant specifically for cider. And those have really nice balances of acid and sugar and tannin and things that, that when fermented out yield really nice cider. So we have about a hundred varieties, plus or minus a hundred varieties of cider specific fruit that we are trialing. <laughs> wow, cool. That's the diversity you're talking about. That's the diversity. Yep. And yes. So when I say trialing, England and northern France where apples are grown is cool and very moderate climate and very wet and rainy and very, very, very different than our Arizona Mm -hmm. uh, high desert. So some of those apples are very, very confused and probably will get kicked off the kicked off the show. (laughs) Wow. So you're up to some really, really great work. That's awesome. All this talk of apple cider is wetting my taste buds. How do I go about getting some to try? Great question. We are currently in about 30 places in Prescott, Flagstaff, Sedona, and Phoenix. Oh, okay, good. Phoenix is good because that's where I live. But so somebody in San Diego, what do they do? If you are outside of Arizona, you can go on our website, stoiccider.com, and through a company called Vino Shipper, they hold the permits to 35 states. So if you're lucky enough to be in one of those 35 states, uh, you can order it and we can put in a box and send it to you. Nice. If you're outside of that, please come visit. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Uh, And we come and visit you. I think there's a farmer's market that we visit you at, right? Yep. That's actually the best place to find us is the Flagstaff Farmer's Market. And we will be there all season. So please come. It's Sunday, I believe, 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. So your website is? Stoiccider.com. Perfect. So go visit Stoiccider.com and place your order there. So before we wrap up, what new piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, I've been thinking about that. And I like the idea of figuring out how to create really good, great habitat for the things we want more of in our life. So you can take that a lot of different ways. And I'm going to take that as a very much the ecosystem habitat thing at direction and talk about mason bees. So orchard mason bees pollinate fruit trees something like 16,000 times or maybe 1,000 times better than honeybees. Wow, really? Honeybees, it turns out, are very, very good at getting pollen and less good about sharing that pollen with other trees that need that pollen. (laughs) And mason bees are not so good at getting pollen and they're very end up being much better at sharing, sharing that pollen between trees that need the pollen also. Wow. So so mason bees, they look for little holes that are fi- around 5 sixteenths in diameter, and they lay their eggs in those little holes and pack mud in around them. And that's where the name mason comes from. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of places on the internet where you can just buy mason bees and release them. But if you just release them without drilling little holes for them, then they their population can't really do very well. Like they're limited by the number of holes out there. Mm -hmm. And this turns out as a huge learning process for me. I was just like, okay, I'll drill some holes. (laughs) And I'll get a few bees to get it started. And 
I think I think I got a hundred bees, and we have two hundred some fruit trees right now. Uh-huh. And I, I've seen one of them since then. <laughs> so hopefully they're out doing their job. I'm going to try over. It's probably going to be a series of a couple of years of creating specific habitat, drilling these holes for these mason bees, and then getting mason bees to live in those holes. Mm-hmm. Um, so a piece of advice, though, is the idea that we can create a habitat for what we want. And then if the habitat is there, hopefully the thing that we want will come there and have a space to be. Yeah. Well, in mason bees, they look like a honeybee. Are they just, they're just smaller, I'll bet. They're about two thirds the size of a honeybee. They're mm-hmm. black and they're solitary bees. That's the other key piece. They, honeybees live in big colonies of thousands of bees. Right. Mason bees live by themselves and have very quite short lifespan. It's literally a, a few weeks or a few months in the spring. They essentially have to, first they have to find a mate. And then once they've found a mate, then they spend their time laying eggs, collecting pollen to feed the eggs, and mm-hmm. then making these little egg pollen pouches out of mud in these holes. Wow. So your advice is to uh, nurture pollinators. Yes. That sounds great. I love it. And check out mason bees. And in, in having this conversation with you, it's like, man, we need to find a mason bee expert to get on the show. That would be amazing. I would totally. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. I'd want to, yep, I'd want to pick his brain too. Cool. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us again on the show, Kanan. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you bet. So our listeners can get a hold of you. How? Stoiccider.com is our website. Mm-hmm. Cider at stoiccider.com. That's our email to get a hold of us. Please sign up for our newsletter, and that is, you can find that on our website. Once a month, we send out a monthly newsletter, and in that monthly newsletter, we usually describe what we're doing at Cidery. Usually, it's some little story of something that went terribly wrong that month or yeah. something we're really excited <laughs> about. Yeah, the terribly wrong part is where we learn. Right. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, usually. Yeah. Instagram, we're big fans of Instagram, so follow us on Instagram. And we're, we're in... All the Whole Foods except the Tucson one in Arizona and all Uh the Whole Foods except the Tucson one and currently the Paradise Valley one. So Whole Foods is a great spot to find us. Oh, so my 20th Street Whole Foods has uh, your cider in it. Good chance on it. Yep. Okay, good. I'll go check it out tonight. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash stoic cider. And if you would like to hear more from Kanan and find all about his apple research. You can find him on episode 199 of our podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash AZ Cider. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. 
They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.